Hello, everybody. This is Sean. I am the moderator for this episode of the Pie Factory podcast. A pre-correction is in order. Later in this episode, you will hear me struggle to figure out the name of one of the co-owners of Pixel Blast Arcade in Lyle, Illinois. You'll hear that I was able to identify Trickman Terry Minich as one of the co-owners. The other co-owner whose name I had the biggest problem trying to remember this time was Paul Ojeda, or is it Ojeda? I don't know. Anyway, my sincerest apologies to Terry and Paul for this um, ignorant um, brain fart. And of course, the interesting thing is that a year ago when we talked about Pixel Blast, it was the other way around. I remembered Paul's name, I just couldn't think of Terry's name. But anyway, if you're ever in the southwest Chicago suburbs, check them out. Pixel West, downtown Lyle and Burlington Avenue. Anyway, here's Pie Factory Podcast. Um, I had two weeks. You'd think I'd be able to think of a way to start the show, but... Uh, it hasn't stopped me. I... I, I guess not, I'm, but um, heck, let's just let's just dive right in. Uh, oh, hi everybody! It's Pie Factory Podcast, Pie Factory Podcast, episode number fifty-seven. For those keeping score, and I am I am your um, congenial host. I, I'm your congenital host, the the Sean, and um, over to my southwest is. Uh, I think today I'm going to change my name up a little bit. Uh, today I will be Yo G. So Yo G. Yo G. Yeah. G dog. G money. You know that sort of thing. I am. I'm hip. Yeah. I'm hip. I'm with it. Yeah. So uh, I've been wanting to use an Austin Powers line that hasn't been really actually been done ad infinitum for a while. Oh, there you go. There you go. Uh, so um, can everybody out there hear me? What? Yeah. Okay. Good. Good. So, Yoji, yo, what have you been up to the past um, almost two weeks since we recorded? Well, it's mildly amusing that you ask. <laughs> Notice how I didn't say funny to prevent the uh, laugh joke that you always do. Um, been playing a lot of uh, one of the games that we are talking about tonight. Of course, it's one of my favorites. But uh, dug out my uh, master system. That uh, again, I'm, I'm, every time I talk about it, I always mention who I got it as a Christmas Christmas gift from. Do, should I keep doing that, or do you think we pretty much all already know it's Jeff Prescott, or as they say in Arizona, Prescott? Yeah, because so we play- haven't said that before this whole this whole uh, podcast existence. Oh, no, not at all. But I was playing some of that because I was um, watching some old um, angry video game nerd episodes, and he was doing uh, um, Rocky for the Sega Master System, and I'm like. And he was, like, having a hard time with, like, the bonus rounds and stuff like that. And I'm, like, thinking that, uh, I wonder if I could do better on the game now that I have, that I have the, uh, I have the, uh, the, the Sega Genesis arcade stick, which, with Rapid Fire, which works quite smashingly with the Sega Master System. Because one of his complaints was that, uh, the first round with, uh, Clubber Lang, or I'm sorry, with, not Clubber Lang, with, uh, Apollo Creed is... Really pretty easy, but you just cannot win no matter what against Clubber Lang. And I'm like, you know what? I'll take them. I'll I'll will see what uh, difference there is if I have the rapid fire on the Sega joystick. Um, what happens when you have that going? And I was able to 
to really trounce the uh, the the, uh, the bonus rounds you're supposed to get. You know, it's like you're punching a punching bag or what are the what, what do they call the the big long one? Like the body? Well, it's not body bag, but uh, I, it's a punching bag, I guess. A punch, well, that's that's the big punching bag, and you get uh, you know speed ups, power ups, and that sort of thing with it. You could totally beat Apollo Creed. I was able to beat him easily. Uh, but apparently that wasn't a problem with the angry video game nerd. So, you know, I had the, as I was saying, had the rapid fire on. And so I was trying to beat Clubber Lang. And uh, with the rapid fire on, I went, I think it was eight rounds with Clubber Lang, uh, portrayed by Mr. T in the uh, second Rocky film, I believe it was. Might have been the, th- was it second or the third? That was Rocky Three. That was Rocky Three. Okay. So, yes. went ten or eight rounds with him. And. He knocked me out, and I, I, I'm like, I'm convinced there's no way you can beat Clubber Lang in the Sega Master System version of the game Rocky. Just, I, I just don't think you can do it. Not well. They only covered Rocky's first bout with Clubber Lang. They didn't cover the second one, so that's why. As far as we know, I, I don't know what's going on there. But you know what? Because I did get knocked out, and it did say you could continue fighting Clubber Lang again, but. When I was fighting Clubber Lang now, mind you, it took me eight rounds, and I went the full time on all seven rounds, and I think it was there was only like 10, maybe 20 seconds left on the eighth round. That's like 24, 25 minutes. Hmm. A little longer if you, uh, if you take into account like the, uh, the interstitial screens uh, between, uh, between rounds. Um, and I'm just I'm convinced that you cannot beat Clubber Lang in Sega Master System Rocky. Just, I just don't think you can do it. Just don't think it's possible. I'm sure a lot of people out there mm-hmm. go, oh, you're wrong. I've done it millions of times, you lamer. I'm like, well, yeah, you know what? I am a lamer. I'm going to check Twin Galaxies, see if anybody submitted video. Ooh, that's interesting. Possibly. Since they started the upload your video to get adjudicated pro- Now, uh, I process. will say that I did not look at any um, walkthroughs of the game or any strategy guides or whatever that are on, you know, that pretty much every game has online these days. Hell, they probably even got one for Atari 2600 Skydiver out there somewhere, which is, a, in my opinion, a surprisingly fun game. But that's just me. Um, I still haven't played that. That's, uh, and I have I love Skydiver and Human Cannonball on the 2600. Those are just two of my favorite games because they're just... I don't know why. I just... They, they, they're just pleasing well, I know what it is. I, I think I know what it is. Is the sound effect they make when uh, when they uh, land on the ground, the the crunch sound they make is satisfying. And in uh, Human Cannonball, he says "ouch." So, O U line feed C H. Mm-hmm, indeed. So that's pretty much what I've been playing, for the most part. I haven't done too much. I've been uh, trying to uh, look into getting that. Uh, my AV mod installed on my 7800, but I haven't gotten around to it yet. Hopefully this coming weekend, which will be, depending on when this is released, either the day after or a couple of days before this episode was released. So mm-hmm. there you go. Oh, and I'm holding in my hand a pen that says SCAT on it. SC Atari Sign T. Suburban Chicago Atarians. I'm sorry, SCAT... It's like something you go to some not nice website for. What? Oh, yeah. Scatman Crothers. Anyway, that's what I've been up to. How about yourself? How about myself? 
I continued playing Asteroids Deluxe on the 7800 because of the Atari Age High Score Club, and I won the round. <laughs> I got over somewhere in the 60,000 range nice. in the expert mode. And, um, and the whole time I'm playing this, I'm getting better and better and better every time. I'm thinking, man, when I finally play the arcade version again, I'd better be a freaking champ at that game. So I loaded it up in MAME, and then I forgot that the arcade version defaults at only two lives. Uh-oh. And that just threw everything off. It's like, man, you suck. Just got to get over the little mental thing, you know. Get over <sighs> yeah. As we have said before, I love Asteroids Deluxe. And I played Space Duel in the 7800, too. Hmm. And something I'm noticing, I don't, it might just be my TV, but Space Duel looks awfully dim on my hmm. TV on the 7800. And ironically, uh, Asteroids Deluxe looks uh, pretty dim in the arcade. Yeah, it does, except Duel. for the one at Pixel Blast. There's oh, that's right, you were saying that. We got to get back there. We keep saying that. Oh, yeah, you know what? I'm thinking of going there this weekend, and I think you know why. And this is probably our first bit of news here, but uh, yeah, it's their first anniversary. Yay! Yay. Was it July uh, Congratulations, first? guys, at first? Pixel Blast, uh, whose names are the... TJ Minich and, um... Oh, man, are you kidding? I can't. I keep forgetting the other guy's <laughs> name. TJ and the Bear. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't say that. No, they're nice guys. They're, they're awesome guys. And, um, and congratulations on a full year. Uh, you are a great asset to the Chicago arcade community. And um, you might not be the biggest arcade in the Chicago area, but... Uh, you guys have got really an interesting mix of games, not just video games. And we've every time we talk about Pixel Blast, we have to mention what was it that uh, the Air Hand was it Air Handball? Air Handball, yes. Air Handball machine they have there. Get to Lyle, Illinois. Get to Pixel Blast just to play the Air Handball machine. Uh, oh yeah. You know, make that your number one thing. Stay there for a while and play other things, of course. But uh, you have got to, it's play that it is freaking fun it's air hockey except you're next to each other and uh the puck kind of goes like uh like it, you know it banks and everything um oh what was it um in the 70s and 80s there was a toy company called ideal they had a uh a board game what was it was well more of an action game called rebound where you had like these little pucks i need to bounce them off rubber bands and get them into like a pit on the other side and that's kind of what this is like in a way Except it's a lot more fun. It was put out by the Brunswick Company, uh, best known for bowling alleys. Um, it is real fun. It's it's probably honestly they got a lot of fun things there. Don't get me wrong. I mean, a lot of fun games. But that is, but you know what? I won't say it's the most fun. It's the most intriguing. It's the most interesting game they have, and it's it's a lot of fun. Although oh yeah. They have that other game there where you have to get the marble up the top of the tower. What was that one? Hill Climber. Hill Climber. Okay. That one was pretty fun too. But those are mechanical yeah, games. I can't those are believe it's games. an electromechanical game, but it's from like 1993. I didn't know they were I making know. them that late. It was it's a fun game. So, get oh, the yeah. Pixel Blast, spend some money, and if they have the popcorn machine, go and buy some popcorn and uh tell them the guys at Pie Factory said, "Hey, the guys at Pie Factory can't remember your names." So, yeah. And uh, I'm sure and check out the uh, check out the Euro place nearby too. Oh dear lord, they're like what two blocks tops in the if shopping that, plaza yeah. just north of there. Greasy spoon, little bit of a oh, little bit of a dump. Even greasy spoon. <laughs> well, yeah, 
It's, a, it, it's like, I'm not going to lie. It's a bit of a dump, but the euros are so freaking delicious. It was really good. They were nice guys there, too. Oh, yeah, because we've told the story before, but we got there like Yeah, they were about to close. They were They're like, oh, come on, we'll we make you know. some food. I was like, okay. We didn't know they were closing, but yeah, they yeah. were really nice, accommodated us, and uh, hey, stop there. You're nice to us, we're nice to you back, you know? Yep, so, yep. That was a bit of news. Yeah. Uh, so, oh, and also, I, I've had this for months and i finally played it mm-hmm. star castle for the 2600 it's really it, i was really digging it the only problem i have with it is that your ship you can't really tell how you're oriented because it's kind of triangular shape just like any other ship in a space game except you can't really it, it's too uh, what's it, it's too symmetrical you can't really tell which end is the firing end until you fire and it's very disorienting it's like, ah. does it have the, uh, the, the stars in the background of the playing f- of the play field? Oh, um, let me check. <laughs> yes, it does have the stars. Okay. Yeah. Uh, when we eventually talk about star castle, we'll, uh, f- let you know uh, why that's a big thing. Uh, why I was interested if it had the, uh, the stars. If you're into the arcade arcade history and arcade lore, you probably already know, but uh, yeah. There you go. And um, let's see. And of course I've been playing a lot of the two games we will be talking about eventually in this episode. I played a lot of one of them and I played barely enough of the other one. Gee, I wonder which one. Yeah, no kidding. As Sean types up his resume. No, actually I was playing Star Castle. Oh, <laughs> well, don't mind me. All right, I okay, don't mind look you. Up, look up, look up. Oh, you blew it. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I gave up. That, that's. Uh... But hey, you know what? I, I give up. I can't find the name of the um, other proprietor of Pixel Blast, and I feel really bad about that. So um, that having been said, as you like to say, we have a new segment on Pie Factory Podcast. This exciting new segment is called. Everything we know about Atari Box. Can we open up everything we know about Atari Box, please? It's time for another edition of Everything We Know About the Atari Box. So, Jimmy G, do you have anything? I know nothing. Well, neither do I. So that was another edition of Everything We Know About the Atari Box. And as long as we're talking about that, there's some other uh, news. Uh, The long-rumored Super Nintendo Entertainment System, the SNES Mini, was announced. Yeah, and oh, I'm sorry. Uh, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> and it's going to have 21 games. It's a pretty good selection of games. It's going to be twenty dollars more than the NES Mini uh, at an eighty dollar price point. Uh, one of the 21 games is actually an unreleased prototype, so that's uh, kind of interesting. It's uh, Star Fox Two, and um, yeah, not more than uh, an hour after I heard the news, people were already selling them online for three hundred bucks. Like, I'll wait in line for you, and you will have it within a few days of it being released on September 29th. And uh, most of those uh, auctions uh, have actually gotten shut down by eBay, because uh, on eBay, uh, you have to deliver the product within 30 days. So Uh just wait until uh, September 1st rolls around before you see these things start up again. So (laughs) I'm thinking Nintendo's actually going to make a lot more of these than they did the NES Mini. Uh, because the price is higher, they're introducing it a lot earlier, a full month, month and a half earlier than the NES Mini. 
So yeah, I have a feeling they're going to play this one correctly. Um, whether they do or not is, remains to be seen, but, uh, you know, keep our eyes open. Sure, yeah, I'll be sure to do that. Oh, I will. Uh, I'm I'm not going to get one because I just got I got my Raspberry Pi if I want to play any of those games, but, you know. I still think it's an interesting thing nonetheless. Let's face it, guys like you and me are not the target audience for that sort of thing. So, so why the hell are we talking about it? Because it's the rule that every video game podcast has to talk about the newest Nintendo thing that's pissing everybody off. That could be. And as long as we're talking about this... Is it this, pissing me off? No, I just don't freaking care. That's all there is to it. And as long as we're talking about home consoles sort of things... Um, at Games released the list of their fall 2017 lineup. There's actually going to be four different Atari flashbacks. Uh, first of all, there's the portable, and it's going to have 70 games, including Pac-Man. And it looks like the version of Pac-Man they have on there is going to be the uh, the 8K uh, 2600 Ooh, version. Nice. So that yeah, that's nice. And um, it's didn't have, realize it was know, 8K. I think that was 8K. It might be. Um, but uh, they're also going to have Pitfall, Frogger, Dig Dug, um, all of those. Um, they're going to have a lot of uh, lot of Activision games on these. But um, then that's for the handheld. Now they've got three different versions of the classic or the flashback uh, plug and play. There's a value priced edition with 105 games: uh, Pitfall, Kaboom, R- River Raid, two wired controllers, and uh, you know ports so you can add your own wired controllers. Uh, the Atari Flashback 8 Gold features 120 built-in games, and uh, it's going to have two 2.4 gigahertz wireless controllers styled after the 2600 originals. You can tell I'm reading off of the press release. As well as uh, two ports for option wire joysticks or paddles. And um, it's going to have 720p HDMI output, scanline filtering, save, pause, rewind feature for every game. So that's pretty cool. And there's the Atari Flashback 8 Gold Activision Edition which 130 different Ooh. games, including 39 Activision games. I don't have the actual list here, but they say it's also going to include games like Chop Command, Enduro, River Raid. It's going to have the wireless controllers, as well as the uh, the ports, obviously, for the wired controllers, and authentic paddle controllers for the Atari Ooh. Flashback 8 Gold. So that might be worth picking up. Ooh, complete with jitter if you leave them st- sitting around unused exactly. for so, long enough. I mean, 130 games... It's pretty decent. That's pretty decent. There's no price point on these yet, so we'll have to see. But there are also um, three Sega Genesis uh, devices. First of all, the Ultimate Portable. It's going to have 85 built-in Sega Genesis and Mega Drive games. And it's going to include a game called Pack Panic, which I've never heard of. Uh, Splatterhouse 2, as well as a whole bunch of others, and obviously with the SD card. And uh, it's going to have save game support for uh, the Fantasy Star role-playing games. And blah, 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 blah. Um, then they're going to have the classic game console, which is value-priced uh, Genesis Flashback, with uh, 81 all-time favorite games uh, and new editions. Including games like Shining Force, Shining Force 2, Shining in the Darkness, uh, blah, blah, blah. And two wired controllers styled after the Genesis originals, as well as two legacy controller ports. Duh. And the Genesis Flashback. Now, this is the one I'm interested in. 
It's going to have a stunning new design, reminiscent. <clears throat> this is this is their uh, their boiler. Well, not their boilerplate. This is their description here. It has a stunning new design, reminiscent of the original console, and features 85 building games as well as integrated cartridge port that plays almost all of your favorite Sega Genesis and Mega Drive original cartridges. Built in all-time favorites include the Sonic games, Mortal Kombat games, the Fantasy Star games, and Shining Force games. Uh, two 2.4 gigahertz wireless controllers. One of the big uh, uh, sticking points with the wireless controllers on these things cause, was that they were infrared, but these are not. And um, two legacy controller ports, blah, 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 720p HDMI output, scanline filtering, save, pause, rewind as the flashback, uh, Atari flashbacks. And I have read that the Sega Genesis flashback, which is the higher end model of the three, is also going to have Sega Game Gear and Sega Master System games in there instead of Ooh. the sucky uh, placeholder games that uh, made up like half of the titles for these Genesis flashbacks. So uh, that would make this worth getting, I think. Um, if I didn't already have a, a Sega Master System, uh, the Sega Genesis flashback would be a, a must purchase for me. Of course, the big question on all this stuff is, are they going to have the sound emulation in the proper key? That remains to be seen. So, um, is that all the news we done have? I do I believe it is. I think it is. There's quite a quite the news round here. Yeah. So, and yeah, I know Keith Robinson died, but that that's the problem with having a biweekly podcast that happens mm. oh, on about our that. schedule yeah. because it's already happened by the time we record. It's already done and talked about. So, R.I.P. Uh, Keith Robinson. Very yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I have very limited experience with the Intellivision, but. Um, if there's one game from the Intellivision that I could play over and over and over, it would be the uh, Advanced Dungeons & Dragons Cloudy Mountain. Uh, great Ooh. game. And um, again, R.I.P. Keith Robinson. From what I've heard, he's a real nice guy. He was a real nice guy and very accommodating. Yeah, he's not a nice guy anymore. He's a jerk now. Well, well, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't answer you anymore now. I mean, come on. He, he never answered me you. in the first place. So. Yeah, so, but uh, seriously, uh, R.I.P. Uh, we lost another uh, uh, another giant in the classic retro game field, and he wasn't very old either. No, he was sixty-one, which is only like thirteen years older than me. Well, twelve and a half, or something. I turned forty-nine this year. Ugh. Well, hey, by the time John Lennon was my age, he had been dead for nearly three years. So, oh well, there you I, go. That's the way I look at things. It, it all works out. Shows you how much I've accomplished in life. By the way, but when is This Week in Potatoes coming back from hiatus? Soon. Soon. And very soon. Awesome. But uh, speaking of hiatuses, we got some uh, some feedback that we should address. Uh, we got this, I think, literally while we were recording the previous episode. I believe this gentleman is a longtime listener, Robert McNally Rafferty, who says, uh, in com- this is in comment to episode 55, I believe, I think. Um, and he says, great episode, but I am a little taken back by the, and the arcade mercifully burned down after Hurricane Sandy. I was referring to flashbacks on the mm-hmm. boardwalk at, in Seaside Heights. I think Sandy took some of it away, and then a massive fire happened a couple of months later that burned the rest of it down. But uh, Robert says, hate to see any games get trashed, and I've had to trash quite a few. I mean, yeah, I, I know what you're saying there. It's just that seriously, and from my experience, my, my wife and I had gone back to Seaside Heights every year since 1998, and every year those games were in worse and worse shape. And my whole point was the fire is probably the 
kindest treatment that ever happened to them. It was just kind of angering how crappily they took care of those games over there. I mean, yeah, I don't want to see things go to trash either, but, you know, I'm just saying, relatively speaking. They were put it, out of their mercy. They were put, a, they were put, put out, out of their they, misery. They, put out of their they misery. They were put out of their misery. Yes. It was misery mercy. Yes. It was, it was, but, yeah, and, uh, it was a mercy, a mercy killing, unfortunately. And um, thank you for the thought on that, Robert. Um, and uh, I do done believe that we done do have some addenda. And errata. Well, okay, I think we have one addendum. I, I, don't ha- I don't know if I have anything else for this, but this comes from our friend Duke, whom I believe we mentioned before in a previous uh, episode. And, How um, could we talk about Centipede and not mention Duke? Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's very true. But Duke noted that um, in discussion of the duck hunt world records that I had mentioned, Randy Lawton, like he told me something that I didn't know. And of course, a lot of people who are listening to this who are diehard arcade gamers are probably smacking themselves in the head in disbelief that the hosts of a podcast about this stuff do not know this. But it turns out that Randy Lawton is the owner of Funspot. Uh-huh. So, but I'm I'm sorry I don't hang out if I've never been to Fun Spot. How would I know that? You know, uh, if anybody wants to donate uh, to send me and Sean to Fun Spot, uh, we will not uh, reject your donations. Patreon.com/slash/PieFactoryPodcast. P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Mm-hmm, indeed, and if you uh, give us enough money, we'll even mention you on the show. P-I-E-F-A-C-T-O-R-Y-P-O-D-C-A-S-T dot com. Mm-hmm. Uh, how about you there, Yo G- Yo Jim? What, what, what was your Yo G? Yo G. How about yeah, you no, there, Yo I don't G? Ha- I, I do not have any uh, addenda and errata. No okay. A&E. You are not right, listening so. to A&E. All right, so no more Mad Men. Yes, I know it was AMC, but I can't think of any shows that were. Okay, so yeah, no more An Evening at the Improv there with Bud Freeman's Two Drink Minimum or something. What was the interview oh. show that was on A&E um, that they parodied on Saturday Night Live? Will Ferrell did the impersonation of the guy, and it was a great impersonation. Inside the actor's studio. Yes. Oh, yes. I love Will Ferrell's impersonation of the guy in that. <laughs> that was awesome. That was yes. beautiful. Inside oh, dude, the arcade Oh, what's that guy's studio. name? I don't remember. I remember oh, there was man. a... Di- wasn't there like... He, didn't he come out with like his biography or something, and he said he was like a pimp in Paris or something? <laughs> oh, geez. I don't... James Lipton. That was his name. <laughs> James Lipton. That's it. James Lipton. James Lipton as a pimp. I... Oh, and I must commend you, Yoji. Oh? When you were referring to Mr. T's Rocky Three character, you actually called him by the character's name. Everybody's, oh, yeah, that's the one Rocky fought Mr. T. No. Rocky fought Clubber, Clubber Lang. Lang. Yeah. So, yeah. And I, he went I, on to a, an illustrious career after that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. And um, so I guess uh, we have nothing, uh, nothing further we need to discuss before we talk about this episode's featured games. Is, my, is that, uh, and a, now am I correct? And our featured presentation. And um, you know what? I'm, I had a really rough day. I need some time to rest. So... As the host of this week's episode, I'm going to designate the first topic of discussion to be two tigers. Well, two tigers, two tigers, two tigres. See, interesting little uh, ah, little bit of trivi- trivia. My son, when he was a little baby, I called him Tiger or El Tigre or Der Tiger. So, yeah, so. <clears throat> Dirty what? Der Tiger. That's German for the tiger. 
Oh. At any rate, Two Tigers, 1984 Bally Midway. The object of the game is to destroy battleships, aircraft carriers, or whatnot along the bottom of the screen within a certain period of time, which I've never been able to figure out what the time period is. You do this by creating a, a number of water spouts through the enemy ship, and you do that by either dropping bombs or shooting down enemy aircraft. Uh, the so you create aquatic tornadoes? Indeed. The aircraft then will hit the deck of the enemy ship, causing damage. Uh, sometimes a, uh, a, a mine will pass by, and you can shoot those to create damage on the bottom of the ship. I'm trying to research this a little bit, but I really couldn't figure, uh, figure out uh, much about it, but... The first convoy of ships will require you to blow three water spouts into it. The second will require four, and the third will require five uh, water spouts. And I couldn't tell you beyond that. Now, the game is uh, can be a two players at the same time game. You could play it single, which single, I mean, is the object, again, to destroy the, uh, uh, the enemy ships. And also, there are two different two-player modes. First of all, there is a cooperative where you have to, again, destroy the ships in the, at the bottom of the screen, but uh, the number of water spouts that you have to create in the ships varies. Then there's also the dogfight mode, which I've never played this two-player, so I can, well, exception of the one time at, uh, at, a, at, an, at an arcade that had it where the player one thing was a little wonky, but um, that's why you play it on player two. But uh, the... Uh, the dogfight mode is just you and the uh, and player two, and you're just going around trying to kill each other. Um, the unlike the rest of the game, the only enemy on the screen is uh, a gun sight, which tries to shoot you down. And plus, like a real regular game, you have a limited number of lives. Uh, in the regular one-player and the two-player cooperative, I believe you have a limit of two ships that you cannot sink per convoy. We got a great big convoy. Ain't she a beautiful size? So if you have like five ships in a convoy, the minimum you have to sink is three. So you can miss two ships, but after the second one, game over. Now, I haven't talked about the control yet because this is an interesting game in the fact that there are two different versions of it, a conversion kit for Tron and a dedicated cabinet. Now, normally conversion kits... Or, you know, swap out the control panel and and whatever, and generally you have a similar setup to the original arcade thing. But this goes a little bit further. There's a lot more changes in the game. Um, first of all, the first noticeable difference between the Tron conversion kit and the dedicated arcade cabinet are the controls. The Tron conversion kit has two dials, like on the, the Tron cabinet, and a a gun button. Uh, was it? labeled shoot, I don't remember, and a button uh, for your bombs. And you can just, the way that the you control your airplane works is your airplane is always moving forward and you use the knob to steer it. You can rotate it all the way around. Now, the control for the standalone cabinet, you can only turn it left, it, it's it's like a, um, it's similar to the handles on um, on a Spy Hunter machine. You can turn it left or right, but you can't spin it all the way around. So if you push to the left... It's a flight yoke. It's a flight yoke. Exactly. You, you turn it to the left, and your ship will turn... Your airplane will turn to the left. You push it to the right, your ship will... Your airplane will turn to the right as long as you hold it that direction. You just can't keep spinning it around and around. And the buttons for your bombs and your guns are on the flight yoke, not on the panel like the Tron conversion. In the Tron conversion kit, it seems like the speed is a constant... 
speed uh, in the standalone. If you go up or down, it can you make your, your airplane go faster. The graphics of the ships that you have to destroy will vary. The Tron conversion kit, all the stages occur during the day. This is interesting and to me the most annoying part of an otherwise almost perfect game. Whenever your airplane crashes, and the only way your airplane can crash is by getting blasted out of the sky by the gun sight or the anti-aircraft guns on the ships. The anti-aircraft guns are only on the dedicated and the gun sight is only on the Tron conversion. So when you, you get hit by one of those or by flying into one of the, what do you, what do you call that color? Like military green? You know, you know, yeah, like, like olive, olive or something. Yeah, like olive-colored uh, airplanes. They're two colored airplanes: a blue one yeah. and an olive-colored one. You can fly through the blue ones, but not the olive-colored ones. So the only way you can die is by getting shot down by the gun sight and by uh, crashing into one of the the olive-colored airplanes. And what happens? Your airplane will go spinning down, but you jump out. Your pilot jumps out and with a parachute, and he floats down. And as soon as he reaches the bottom of the screen your next airplane comes on the screen. You have an unlimited number of airplanes, as I said, except in the dogfight mode. I'll talk more about the parachute thing later because that's uh, annoying, but in the uh, the Tron conversion, all the crashes have the pilot escaping with the parachute, and not all of your crashes on the standalone will your pilot escape with the parachute. On the Tron conversion, your player planes have background sound engine, different high score music. The level of the horizon is halfway up the screen, and da, 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 da. there's no hero table for the dogfight mode, you know, like the high score screen. And the ships leave a wake behind. And the standalone, as I said, they have the self-centering yokes and the two anti-aircraft guns. And believe me, the between the control and the uh, the anti-aircraft guns, the uh, the two games play totally. It's the same game, but they play totally different. And uh, if you score really good on the Tron one, the Tron conversion you will not necessarily score as well on the standalone cabinet, which was... Um, I was taken aback the first time I played the uh, the, the standalone. It was at Galloping Ghost, because I had never known. The only two Tigers machine I'd ever seen before only had the dials and the buttons. I didn't know... I was going to ask you which version they had at Galloping Ghost, because yeah, I the didn't standalone. play it when I was there. They have the standalone. So it has the the flight yokes instead of the uh, yes. Tron and, um it's a lot different playing than the other two Tigers cabinet I played. And it's the same game, but it really does play differently. I mean, the object's the same, but the mechanics are so totally different, they might as well be different games. It's uh, The difference between the two cabinets is almost um, kind of like, I don't know, Asteroids Deluxe to Asteroids style. Well, no, not really, because those games play the same. It's, it's, it's basically a matter of control. It's like trying to play uh, Tempest on your uh, on your PC with a joystick when you should be playing it with a, a dial. I think that's probably the best way to put it. Now, scoring. Every time your bomb hits a ship, you get 150 points. Every time an enemy plane hits the ship, you get 150. Every time you shoot an enemy plane, you get 200. Now, if you can destroy an enemy plane that you shot down as it's plummeting toward the ship, you get 200 points for blasting it out of two. I'm sorry, 250 points for blasting it out of the sky. I have not been able to do that, at least to my knowledge. Yeah, I've I've done that. I hate doing that because if you do that, then it's not going to crash into the ship. I have destroyed my own bombs quite frequently, 
Yeah, I've done that yeah. too. Um, if you destroy mines, swimmers, sharks, or fuel drums in the ocean, you get 700 points each. I think it's funny because the, the swimmer is being chased by the sharks. And you think, well, let's destroy the, the sharks and save the swimmer. You know, you think you might get bonus points for the swimmer going off screen without the sharks chasing them. But no, you don't get any bonus points for that. You, you got to shoot the swimmer too, which he must be, uh, must be an enemy pilot or something. Uh, 1,300 points if you can shoot the submarine, which goes across the bottom of the screen. If you get a hole in the ship, or as I was calling them, the water spouts, they're 1,400 points each. And destroying the ship is 5,000 points. Now, back to what I was saying about the parachutes. When you lose an airplane, you will eject from your airplane, and as I was saying, your parachute will glide down toward the bottom of the screen. Depending on physics... This is real physics, though. This is not video game physics, because the physics, I think, on this work the way it should. If you're flying straight down and you drop a bomb, your bomb will pretty much go straight down. It'll arc just a little bit, you know, just to clear your airplane, but it'll, it'll pretty much go straight down. The same thing if you're flying straight down and you, uh, you crash into something and um, your parachute will go straight down. However, if you're flying up and you lose your ship or you lose your airplane or you drop your bomb or whatever, it'll make a wide arc and go way far away. If you're flying at any sort of other angles, it will follow the laws of physics. And the problem is that this is a timed game, and the longer it takes for your parachutist to reach the bottom of the screen, oh, the, yeah. uh, the, more the less time you have to destroy the ship. And that is, in my opinion, really the biggest flaw with this game. I don't know in the two-player mode if you can shoot down the uh, the other player's uh, parachuting guy. If you can, that would be awesome so that you could speed the game up a little bit. I mean, it's not like this is a slow game. I mean, to give you more time to to destroy the ship because it gets pretty... Uh, pretty with the, with the more holes that you have to put through the ships, the, uh, the more time that's going to take. Um, so, yeah. Uh, so... Um, the best strategy for this game is to be, when you're dropping bombs or whatever, to be flying downward as much as possible to avoid, to, to, for, for no other reason than to save time. And also, the mines when shot, I think I, be, I believe I already said this, uh, will destroy like three like sections of, your, uh, of the ship uh, on the bottom. When you shoot the mines, try to shoot them when they're more toward the middle of the ship, because if they're too far to the left or too far to the right, they might not go through uh, go through the ship. They have to be somewhere in the uh, the main part of the hull of the ship. And um, the bombs in the airplanes behave a little bit differently. When they hit the deck of the ship, they will knock out one like one square of the hull. However, every ship will have some sort of a, a superstructure on it, uh, like the control tower, or you know. Stuff like that, you know. Ships aren't flat. They got, like, buildings and houses and whatever on top of them. If an airplane uh, crashes down, it will go right through all of the superstructure until it hits the deck and creates, you know, and, and removes some of it. A bomb will only take out one square of the superstructure. So, obviously, shooting down as many airplanes as you can is uh, is paramount to ship sinking the ship fast. However... Don't neglect the bombs either. They're not as powerful as shooting down airplanes, but they're still pretty invaluable. Always, every opportunity you get, always drop a bomb. Doesn't matter. Some interesting trivia about the game. This is a, supposedly 
based on a novel called Gus is My Co-Pilot. Now, I've searched Google, I've searched Amazon, I've searched the Library of Congress. I cannot find anything about a novel by that name. So I'm wondering if... Yeah, I searched the Chicago Public Library, and I also searched this thing called WorldCat, which is literally all... Well, not all, mm-hmm. but libraries all over the world, and nothing came up under that title. And this comes from the Bally Advertising Flyer. It does. Uh, you don't see it anywhere else. Either that or it's a forgery. I don't know. And um, I actually tried contacting the designer of the game. Uh, the guy's name is Ron Halliburton. He's with a, with a company in Florida, I believe, called Acme Games, about the Gus is my co-pilot thing, but uh, unfortunately I've not heard He that also from... did Omega Race, by the way. Oh, did he? Oh, that's right. He did, didn't he? I believe so. Ooh, he would be a good, interesting interview if we could get him. So I'm assuming that Gus is my co-pilot was made up for this particular game for the uh, promotional. I love the promotional posters for this. It looked like like a, a movie poster for like a typical World War II film from like the late 40s, early 50s. It was in that kind of style. It was. It was. It's actually. I. I say it's actually kind of a bit of a work of art in a way. <laughs> it's really quite snazzy. I think. So yeah. Um, that's pretty much all I have to say about the actual gameplay. And trivia and whatever about um, Two Tigers. Do you have anything you want to say about this game, Sean? Yeah, well, first of all, i got to ask you, why is it called Two Tigers? I'm assuming because, A, it's two players, and you're both flying airplanes that uh, possibly have tigers painted on them. I believe in the artwork it showed, like, uh, tiger artwork painted on them. I'd I'd have to look at that again, Hmm. but that's my theory. Yeah, I I tried to find out, and the closest I could come is that there are so many like military divisions that that have kind of a nickname of like Tiger Force, Flying Tigers, and things like that. And uh, one thing that that I found interesting was there was one that was called Tiger Force that was in uh, World War II for um, in the British Commonwealth, mm-hmm. and um, they were supposed to be deployed to the Pacific Theater of World War II. Mm -hmm. And um, I just thought that was interesting, uh, given something else we have to talk about uh, later on. They ended up not being deployed. They kind of broke up. And there was also the first American volunteer group of the Chinese Air Force, and uh, they called themselves the Flying Tigers, and that was also during World War II when this game takes place. So it could be that, for all we know. I don't know. Possibly. But I think... From a, from a military perspective, uh, especially that that era, as you were saying, you know, there's a lot named tigers. I'm sure there was like well, there were like sharks, and uh, there were other things that they would paint on them. And but then there's that Spielberg movie from the late '70s, early '80s that featured John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd, and uh, they had, if I'm not mistaken, they had you know shark jaws painted on their airplanes in that film. So I guess that was kind oh, of sure. a really common thing uh, back then to uh, to personalize one's aircraft. And to, uh, you know, make it fierce at the same time. Makes sense. And something else, since the waves are kind of divided up into convoys, if you will, there was also Operation Tiger, which was a 1941 World War II convoy. I wonder if that has anything to do with it. Could be. There's a, there oh, is a, there, Ron Halliburton, answer our questions. <laughs> there is a, really, if you really th- dig deep into the theme of this game, not the necessarily the game itself, but the theme uh, and you you look at a lot of the World War II flying groups and whatever. There's a lot of really interesting, rich history there. Oh yeah. So, 
my uh, my late father in law was a World War II pilot. Oh, really? Uh huh. Yep. I knew he was a pilot. I didn't know he was a uh, military yeah, military. Pilot. Well, most pilots are start out as military well, pilots. From, so. from that era, they did. Yeah, not necessarily today, but definitely from then. Oh, true. But uh, true. but yeah, he was a World War II pilot. In fact, uh, in our living room, we have a picture of him in his uh, what do they call him? Dress blues, I guess. The military dress outfit, like his, you know what I'm saying? Formal outfit, the formal, I the guess. formal military outfit, outfit for formal bombings, I guess. So, Sean, what do you think of the game? It's I had never heard of it until I heard you talk about it. You're like, oh, I'd like to talk about two tigers, and I didn't even play it when I went to Galloping Ghost last. I don't know. Oh, I know. I know why because I didn't have much time. I was on a time crunch, but um, I played it in Mame. I really thought it was a cool game. I'm talking about the original standalone version, not the Tron one, by the okay. way. And uh, what's interesting is it is really a difficult game. It is. it is hard to sink a ship, but at the same time, it's a lot of fun. The only knock against this game, in my opinion, is the whole thing with the parachute. And the Tron, or not the Tron, the standalone, you don't always bail out of your airplane with the parachute. But in the Tron version, you always do. I never saw the parachute in the standalone version. I have to double check that. I could have sworn. You're not going to double well, check. I could have sworn I saw that. But, you know, I, I, I love this game, so I'm definitely going to double check that. And in fact, that was something I noticed about the Tron version. I was like, oh, this is interesting. There's a parachute. And then I was like, okay, hurry up and fall already. Mm-hmm. Give me another plane. That really aggravated. I did not like the Tron conversion. Really? I didn't. Because it just it just made it more difficult than it should be. Because you got the parachute that you have to wait for. You have the gun sight that's going at you. It's like, come on, I don't need more crap to have to deal with. Just, I, I was happy to go back to the standalone one. No kidding, because I prefer the Tron one. Now, the parachute thing is, is, is a huge knock against it, but I think the Tron version controls a lot better. One thing I did neglect to mention is... Uh, you can fly off of any side of the screen, the top, the bottom, the left, or the right. And when you reappear back oh, on the yeah, other side, yeah. you actually have a shield around your ship for just a, a moment or two until you get up, get away from the edge of the screen. So there's no cheap deaths, and I did like that. And that's in both versions of the game. Well, the thing is, that's how ocean water worked back in the 40s. But of course, I mean, the Philadelphia you experiment. You go up to the and sky, and then you end up coming out of the water. I mean, the Philadelphia experiment and all, so... Well, Yeah. You know, I and what I, I don't th- something else that I th- I couldn't help but think was if rescue were more like two tigers, I would have liked rescue a lot more. Oh yes, definitely. Because two tigers was challenging enough. Rescue was just too cheap. Yeah, the, and as we said about rescue in that episode, if there was some way that you could get closer to the ocean without your shit, your your helicopter sinking into the ocean. That would have yeah. been a great game, but that ruined the game because you never could tell how close, and you have to purposely get close to the ocean in that game, whereas in this game, you don't have to. Um, you can, but you don't have to do that. And um, as far as the, the, the different cabinets go, like I said, I always thought the Tron one with the dial, you could just spin around and around and around, was the original. I didn't realize when I first played it, it was a conversion kit. And then Galloping Ghost has the two tigers standalone. They do not have the conversion kit. The control is a lot different and not as... I don't know. I, there's just something about spinning the wheel around and around and around 
that I just thought control made it control a lot better instead of doing the normal steering wheel thing. Oh, and by the way, uh, if uh, anybody at Atari Age, any of the homebrewers over there is listening, uh, two Tigers would be a great conversion to the Atari 2600 uh, using the, pa- the driving control the same thing. driving controller. Ooh. And, uh, but then how would you differentiate between your regular fire and your bomb unless you tap the button for fire and hold it for the bomb? Or just uh, have it keep constantly releasing bonds or have the option for different different ways of doing it. But this would be a great game for the driving controllers, and there was only ever one game officially released for the driving controllers. I think it could. Yeah, right. And, oh, and you know, truth be told, I seldom use the bomb anyway. It's not very effective. I use it. I use it just so I know I have something else going on. I know I can shoot it down and everything, hmm. but I use it religiously. In fact, when I first time I played this, I thought the only way to destroy the ship was using the bombs. Yeah, me too. Until I noticed, wait a minute, they're crashing in the ship. The little fireballs are causing the leaks in the ship. I was like, oh, I have not been able to clear. A ship that requires more than three holes, though. Well, I've not been able to do it. You know, in in playing this game tonight, actually, Sean, it occurred to me that this game is well. You you played Canyon Bomber, right? No, no, believe it or not. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you played Canyon Bomber. No, I have it though. Um, well, it occurs to me that this game actually has a bit of the Canyon Bomber feel uh, oh, in a way. Do tell. Um, just uh, instead of using you know a bunch of bombs, and you do have the bombs. Uh, you're shooting down airplanes, and uh, you get stuff uh, mm-hmm. firing back at you. I just thought that was kind of uh, kind of an interesting thought that I had had about this. Um, I, I got to play that. You should give Canyon Bomber a few tries. Yeah, I should. I've had it for how long? Well, you know that when we talk about games, for the most part, I don't record my scores. But today, I was playing it this afternoon, uh, literally an hour before uh, we recorded the Tron version. And this is uh, on all of the default difficulty. Uh, on the high score table, it'll display your score, but it'll also display how mint the number of uh, enemy ships you've destroyed as well next to it. Uh-huh. I've destroyed five ships, and I got to the point in the game where you actually have to blow five holes in the ship. So I've gotten through wow. the, the two and or the three and the four. My score is 242,700. Wow, that's cool. And that's something else I wanted to address because I've gotten into, I can't destroy a four leak ship. I can't do it. But still, I get well over 100,000. This is what I like about the game is that it's very difficult, but at the same time, it makes up for it in progressively scoring more points. You'll mm-hmm. start out with just a few chintzy points, but man, they give you so many opportunities to increase your score it's it's uh really cool and it's it's they call the the competitive two-player mode dogfight but let's be honest i mean it's pretty much the whole game you're dogfighting against all the other airplanes and they throw so many airplanes at you and then with the anti-aircraft guns or the gun sight uh coming at you i mean and then of course there's all the bonuses that float across at the bottom of the screen i mean there's just a lot there's not a lot to this game play-wise but there's a lot it's there's not a lot to this game but there's also a lot to it at the same time uh i guess is the only way i can think of 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 phrasing it and um i didn't even talk about the graphics in this game they got the typical the typical midway uh style graphics uh like you see in tron or uh, i would say it's a a bluish i wouldn't uh, i would not put it in the same category as tron in terms of graphics no way but they're they're very low-fi graphics for 1984 it's more comparable to Satan's Hollow, uh, but yeah. the airplanes uh, are well defined, and um, 
I love the explosion of the ship when you finally destroy it. That is a cool explosion. I think that is that is a one of the all-time great explosions. I would put it in the top ten with uh, with the explosion of the Death Star in, in uh, Star Wars. That's Arcade, a it, the, the Atari one ship exploding in Two Tigers. That's a beautiful sight. It really is. Oh, it Colors definitely are great. is. And the sound effects. Love the sound effects. I was reading. I didn't include this in the trivia, uh, and I read this and. Um, I forgot to put it in there. The airplane sound effects in the uh, the dedicated cabinet actually come from an 8-track. Really? If I'm not mistaken. I can't find it, but I know I read somewhere. Maybe Doc was telling me uh, that Two Tigers actually had the sound effects, uh, the, the standalone on a tape. I do get a lot of information from arcade-history.com, and uh, I, I write, write this stuff up you know, in my own words. But I do have to read this one line verbatim from the uh, the page for the Two Tigers standalone cabinet. Uh, this is great. <clears throat> Trivia. A conversion kit for Tron was released as Two Tigers, number 0C67. It had significantly different gameplay and stuff. <laughs> yeah, so I, I, I saw I that it. too. It's like, oh, thanks, that helps. <laughs> that is awesome. I'm trying to remember where I saw that about the tape. Huh. Did Doc talk about anyway, it when he uh, w- unveiled it a couple of months ago? He he may may have, but I think he talked to me about it uh, one time when I was having some trouble with the controls, and he had sent somebody right over there to take a look at it. Uh, I think that might be what it was from. But yeah, this I love the sound effects in this game. The explosions, they're they're the tip. It's the same explosion from Satan's Hollow. Let's be honest, except they they uh, they ex- you know extend the sound out. Uh, but most satisfying is the sound of your airplane. That sound effect does not get old. I just absolutely love that. This, there's not a lot, as I was saying, to this game, but what they have in it, it really themes it well. And um, they, they did it all. This is really probably one of the best, one of the most well-designed games, I think, that we've talked about. I mean, there have been others, obviously, but uh, I think this ranks right up there with some of the other ones we've talked about. This is really... Really, really close to being a perfect game, in my opinion. opinion. I don't know why they confused it with two different versions of the game, depending Uh on the type of cabinet. I guess maybe they didn't want to call one Two Tigers and the other one Two Tigers 2. Or Two Tigers Deluxe or something. Two Tigers to the second power. Or Two Tigers Modified. Ah, we'll get to that later. Uh Uh So, do you have any high scores? I don't, because my scores aren't very high. But other people do, however. Oh? Now, the thing is, I don't know which version, because it didn't say in the yeah. track listing the, the on scoring, uh, Twin the Galaxies. The scoring is the same across both cabinets, but the control is so different enough. The control is different, and the gameplay is a little bit different. Yeah, and I th- that would definitely affect your Because you got the other scores. obstacles at you. That would definitely affect your scores, so go ahead. Yeah, but um, there's a Twin Galaxies tracks the single-player version and the two-player cooperative mode. And uh, Dwayne Richards' name is attached to both. Uh, let's see. Dwayne's score of a million one thousand seven hundred was verified May fourteenth, nineteen eighty five. That's a good score. And Dwayne's partner in the two player mode was Andy Seath, I believe it's pronounced, and uh, that was verified December thirty first, two thousand two. They scored two million one hundred thirty four thousand four hundred fifty. And those scores are not far fetched. No, They're, it's I can easily see that. No, not at all far. If you're much better than me, that is. So Dwayne and 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 Dwayne, of course, uh, if that name sounds familiar in. 
to you and you are not a huge like diehard arcade game follower that you know every single thing about it, then it must mean that you saw Man vs. Snake. But the other high score tracking site, Orcade.com, A-U-R-C-A-D-E.com, lists Mitch Carbin, K-A-R-B-I-N, that is maybe it's Carbine, I don't know, but he scored a million five hundred ninety-five thousand. Nice. At Galloping Ghost on May 8th, 2017. And so obviously we know which version that is. Mm -hmm. It's the standalone yoke version. And as for me, um, I I talked about how I did. I I can score well over 100,000, but uh, uh, I still can't destroy more than just like one or two, three leak ships. That would be interesting I, if the if the tracks actually never played also, the actual arcade machine. It, what, I mean, that would be interesting. It what? would be interesting if the uh, the actual tracks uh, also uh, took into account how many uh, ships you destroyed as well. Because I'd be curious to see how how many ships you have to destroy to get over a million points. If you go by mine, uh, two forty two seven hundred, I destroyed five ships over a million. That would be I would say about twenty one twenty two. Actually, less because you got to probably fewer because you have to get more, you know, holes in the ship to destroy them, and you get more points for every hole. Although it's not really that much more. I don't know. I would say twenty-one or twenty-two to get to a million, um, which could be doable. It's uh, it's just crashing into those olive gray airplanes that does me in all the time. I can easily avoid the the gun sights, but uh, well, not easily, but easier. Uh, than running into the damn olive-colored airplanes. And uh, that's, I think, the hardest thing in this game as far as the actual playing of it and not the crashing. But, um, so, yeah, so, do you have anything to add about the game? Uh, about the game? No. About the game, I would say no. I've said my piece. Uh, should we rate the game? Yes, and I'm going to do something a little bit different is I'm going to rate each uh, cabinet differently. Uh, give them each a different score because they're just different enough where I think you could actually do it. I guess I'll go first. I rate the standalone a three. No, I'm sorry. I rate the standalone a four. And I rate the um, the Tron conversion a five. I, wow. It might be just because the very first one I the version of this game I played was the Tron conversion kit. At the time, I didn't realize it was a conversion kit. But... Um, I thought that was the original, and I I prefer the control scheme on that better. I think the uh, the gun sight is more annoying, and then there's the issue with the parachute. But I think overall the Tron version, from a control standpoint, no, this is actually on the arcade machine, which you said you haven't really played. Uh, I think in the arcade, the Tron version plays better. So the standalone of four, the Tron conversion, I'm rating a five. As for me, the Tron conversion again. I I don't like it. There's just too much extra stuff that I don't like dealing with. I'm going to rate that two continues out of five. Wow. And the standalone version, that was the first one I played. That's what I had a really fun time playing. And I was so happy to go back to that. Every time I tried the Tron version, faithfully playing it for this episode, I was like, ah. And then I switched over to the standalone version. It's like, ah, that's better. Two Tigers standalone version with the flight yoke controllers. That gets a four continues from me. Nice. I, I, I'll probably have to play more with the with the yokes to get more used to it. But 
like I said, I think the uh, the Tron version the the Tron version is the one I originally played in the arc. Well, actually, I didn't play it in an arcade. I didn't say where I played it first. And quite honestly, I don't remember the name of the joint. It was in the uh, the waiting area or the uh, order pickup area. You know, the to go order pickup area of a Italian restaurant off of Butterfield Road in Lombard, Illinois. And darned oh. if I can't remember the name of the place. It wasn't Buca de Beppa or. Uh, wasn't Ed DeBevix or anything like that? It was. It was. A, it was. Like um, a, Ed DeBevix isn't an Italian joint anyway. Well, it's not even an open joint anymore. Well, that's true. It isn't, is it? But, um, but it wasn't any place like that. It was. It was. Uh, it was a. Uh, it was some Italian restaurant whose name I just don't remember. And that was the first, and and until Galloping Ghost got it, only time I had ever played uh, two tigers in the arcade. Ha! Anywho. How's about we talk about a other game? Let us talk about a other game. How's about we done talk about... Why do I keep saying we done? Why do I keep talking like I'm not from... We done like, talk about another game. We're going to talk about another game. We're going to talk about 1984. Yay. And just to add to the confusion, it was actually... We're going to talk about 1942. And to add to the confusion, 1942 was not released in 1942. Oh, no. It was released in 1924? Close, 1984, December of 1984, and it was designed by Yoshiki Okamoto, and uh, a lot of you are probably familiar with uh, Yoshiki Okamoto because Yoshiki previously worked for Konami and had worked on Time Pilot and Gyrus before he jumped ship and joined Capcom in 1984. Oh, by the way, this is a Capcom game, 1942 is. And not the first Capcom game we've talked about. No. What is the first Capcom game we talked about? I believe it was Commando. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I yeah. think it was released by Data East, Data East in the U.S., but it is a Capcom game. Capcom. And there are musical segments all throughout the game, and they are all composed by Ayako Mori, who was one of the first music composers that Capcom ever hired. Ayako Mori is perhaps best known for her music in Ghosts and Goblins. Ooh, Ooh Ghosts and Goblins. Really good pedigree. Yeah, I can't stand that game. Spoiler alert. Well, I can't either, but the music is good. Mainly because I can't walk more than five feet before my game's over, but hey. That's, that's definitely a hard game. Anyway, we're not talking about ghosts and um, the goblins. Uh, we're talking about the 1942, and the 1942, what you do is you fly over to England and you witness the birth of Paul McCartney, and all's well that ends well. Yay. So, Oh, wait, shoot. No, that's another game. I'm sorry. This 1942 by Capcom, it is a vertically scrolling shooter, kind of along the lines of Xevious. Plays just like Xevious, well, yeah. maybe not just like no Xevious, but it's very similar. Complete with the repeating it musical motif. And 1942 takes place in the Asian Pacific Theater of Operations of U.S. Forces during World War II. You know, WW2, the big one. Yeah, your big win. As the player, you are controlling a Lockheed P-38 Lightning, which is a piston-engined fighter plane, also known as the Super Ace. And your goal is to pilot the Super Ace to Tokyo and destroy the entire Japanese fleet while dodging approaching Japanese air fleets and their firepower through 32 reverse-numbered stages. Let that sink in for a second. Yeah. A Japanese company created a game in which... The American Air Force or Army, whatever at the time, is Do destroying. Do we know that it's American, though? Well, well somebody. Yeah, I guess it would either way, it's, either way, a, a Japanese company with a Japanese uh, programmer designer at the helm of this game 
is designing in a Japan. game which you got in Japan is designing a game in which you have to destroy Japan's military forces. You are a Japanese person to design a game where you destroy Japan. Okay. Continue. And let this sink in too. You are the only fighter except for extreme circumstances. Just you by yourself against the entire Japanese air force. Think about that. Think about the plausibility of that. Well, that's pretty hey, much the anywho, that's, that's pretty much a theme with pretty much any of these shooter games. You're the last one that can only get in through the through the forces and that sort of thing. In fact, that yeah. was a that was a, a big plot point for the end of uh, the original Star Wars film. Now that I think about it, they had backup though. You don't have backup because in 1942. Only one ship could get past there. Well, that's true. You can't even back up. No, that's true. You're forced to. It's a forced scroller, I believe, is the actual term. Like when you when it keeps going, no matter what you do. Again, like Xevious. So what happens is when you start the game, and indeed when you start any stage of the game, your super ace takes off from an aircraft carrier. It's actually it's a pretty cool animation. It's got a pretty cool musical backdrop to it. And at the end of each stage, your Super Ace lands on another aircraft carrier. And uh, the takeoff and landing is automatic. You don't have to worry about aiming and everything. It just sucks you right in. The gameplay, well, basically all you got to do is shoot everything, pretty much. Your Super Ace has unlimited bullets via a double-barreled gun. And if it gets in danger, you can press the loop button to perform a loop to escape from danger. And you are allowed three loops per Super Ace. Remember, though, I said that what you do is basically shoot everything you see for the most part. Mm -hmm. Well, here's where the for the most part comes in. Sometimes what happens is there's a formation of red planes. When that formation comes out, if you shoot all of those red planes, you get an icon that says POW or P-O-W. Your first thought might be, well, this is a World War II game, obviously. It must be Prisoner of War. Actually, no, it's short for Power Up. What you do is you maneuver the Super Ace over the POW icon, and you get one of several different power-ups. There are several different ones. You can tell which one it is by the color of the word POW. And am I going to talk about them? <laughs> you bet your boots. I'm glad I have boots to bet. As my basic programming instructor from high school used to say. So the word POW, if the text is dark olive with a black outline, your double-barrel gun becomes a quadruple-barrel gun. And that POW is available in every fourth stage, starting with stage 32 and going down through stage four. Remember, the stages are numbered in reverse order. If the POW icon is off-white with a red outline, then what happens is all the enemies and their firepower on the screen at the time gets destroyed and you score the points as if you had shot them down. And that power-up appears in stages 31, 21, 19, 18, 11, 7, 3, and, uh, well, in my notes it says stage 1, but stage 1 doesn't, it isn't actually called stage 1, it's called last stage. Last so, stage. there you have it. There's also an olive pow with a gold outline, and if you pick that up, your super ace gets backup. Two fighters on the side, two, uh... What do you call those things? Escorts. Two, basically, you get two wingmen. Wing, I think it's wingmen's kinda, better, yeah. Escorts. There you, yeah. you get two wingmen, kind of like uh, in Galaga when you do that little ship uh -huh. capture thing. Your wingmen are going to stay attached to your super ace until either they or you are destroyed by enemy fire or an enemy plane. Oh, and by the way, if you or a wingman hits an enemy plane, that enemy plane is also destroyed, unless it's one of the big boss planes. 
apparently you can pick up the side fighter, the, the wingman pow, while you still have two active side fighters. And um, if you do, you get a thousand point hmm. bonus. I've never actually seen that personally, but I'm sure it's yeah, doable by s- people much better at this yeah, game I'm than I am. I've not seen that myself, so I couldn't tell you. If the POW is uh, black letters with a red outline, then you get an extra life if you pick it up, and that's available on stages um, 27, 20, 15, 8, and 4. And there is a orange POW with a black outline. What happens with that is enemies, except for the large planes, will stop firing for a while. And uh, that power-up is available in stages 27 and 15, And there is a yellow power-up with a black outline. If you capture that, then you get awarded an extra chance to use a loop. So if you have, say, all three of your loops still intact, you get a fourth loop if you so desire to use it. And it's one of those use-it-or-lose-it things. If you still have that extra loop and the stage ends, you lose the extra loop. But the good news is, is if you do hold on to that extra loop for the entire stage, you get some bonus points. And uh, the extra loop power-up is on stages 23, 18, 17, 13, 9, and 5. And finally, there's the red power-up with an olive-colored outline. All that does is gives you a 1,000 bonus points, and that can show up in any stage. And uh, speaking of stages, I might as well talk about what each stage goes through. Now, this game, 1942, is supposed to basically take you through simulations of World War II battles. Keep in mind, the name of the game is Mm -hmm. 1942. Keeping that in mind. Stages 32 through 29, remember they are numbered in reverse order. That is the Battle of Midway. Okay. Stages 28 through 25 are the Battle of Marshall Island. Uh, The Battle of Marshall Island actually happened in 1943 and 1944. And 24 through 21 are the Battle of Atu. And which in real life happened in May 1943. And uh, interesting, uh, interesting note: the island of Attu. A little historical fun fact for you: uh, was actually in uh, one of the Aleutian Islands and part of the state of Alaska. And uh, the Japanese. <laughs> yes, you're right, man. You are so right. Oh, you said historical. I'm sorry. Historical. Yes. And uh, the, oh, sorry. The My islands fault. Attu and Kiska. In the Aleutian Islands, as I was saying, were part of, well, Alaska wasn't a state at the time, but it was an American territory. And um, Until Yasho stole the Kiska. Mm-hmm. And what happened was uh, that is the only time uh, in modern history that uh, the United States has actually had uh, territory occupied by an invading army. Fun little historical fact. The more you know, da-da-da-da-ding. And uh, stages 20 through 17, I don't know how this is pronounced, I'm going to guess. That's the Battle of Rabaul. Rabaul, I don't know, which really did happen in 1942. And stages 16 through 13 are the Battle of Leyte, which happened actually at the end of 1944. Stages 12 through 9 deal with the Battle of Saipan, which happened in June 1944. And um, the last stages, 8 through 5, Iwo Jima, and stages four through the last stage, Okinawa, those both happened in 1945. Hence the, the name of the game, 1942. You all following me? Good. Good. So anyway, since I was on the topic of stages, I should talk about what is colloquially known as the percent and points up stage. And that actually happens every fourth stage, starting with stage 29. And why is it called the percent and points up stage? Well, it's because the enemies don't actually fire at you during those stages. So that gives you a better chance of improving your percentage of downed enemies. And you get a bonus 
for the percent of enemies that you shoot down. And since they're not firing at you in these stages, you get a better chance of knocking more down and increasing your score pretty significantly. And uh, while I'm at it, I might as well talk about uh, point scoring too. Uh, What do you say there, uh, Yoji? Yeah, let's talk about that. There are three different types of enemies. uh, Well, at least of the basic types that I'll talk about. Those are the small enemies, mid-sized enemies, and the large enemies. Enemies. And uh, these small enemies are the ones that you're going to see the most of. What typically happens is the small enemies enter from the top, they shoot at you a few times, and they fly away. You can destroy those buggers with only just one hit each. And typically, you will have either a gray plane or a green plane, and they can be single propeller or double propeller. For a green single propeller plane, you get 30 points per hit. And if you hit a green double propeller plane, you get 70 points per hit. Gray planes, regardless of whether they're single or double propeller, will get you 50 points per hit. And then there are the mid-sized enemies. In the earlier stages of the game, the mid-sized enemies are going to start from the top of the screen and they're going to make a loop around, but eventually they're going to kind of favor the bottom of the screen later in the game. And uh, by the way, that tells you that since enemies can appear on the bottom of the screen, you don't just want to hover around the bottom of the screen because they might come up and uh, knock you out from the butt. So watch out for that. The mid-sized enemies require a few more hits than the small enemies. But the thing is, you don't have to actually destroy a mid-sized enemy to get a score. You get 100 points every time you hit a mid-sized enemy, regardless of whether you shoot that plane down. And then, of course, you got yourself the large enemies. And uh, the large enemies are going to come up from the bottom of the screen. They're going to go to the top of the screen and then hover around while firing bullets at you. And you need lots the of shots. Large enemies to are Esmoy Grande. Okay, very large, because Moy Grande means very oh, yes. large. So I guess they're very large enemies. And uh, you get 2,000 points for the first large enemy plane that you destroy. And then for each additional large enemy plane you destroy, you get 500 points. So the next one you shoot down, you get 2,500 points. Then the next one, you get 3,000, etc., And it tops out at 9,000 points. And then there's the boss plane. And the boss plane's name is Ayako. Gee, I wonder if that's named after the hmm. composer in this game. But Ayako appears at the end of every eighth stage, starting with stage 26 and ending with stage two. Yeah, that's right. The final stage of the game does not involve beating the boss character. Interesting. Figure that one out. Basically, if you've ever heard the term bullet hell and uh, you're not quite sure what that means, well, 1942's boss plane will give you a pretty good definition of it. It's nothing. You're just surrounded by clouds of bullets and... Good luck dodging them. Just good luck. It's not going to happen. The boss plane is nearly impossible to defeat, and it requires a butt-ton of shots to destroy that thing. Is that a cubic butt-ton, a metric butt-ton? No, no, just a regular 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 butt-ton. Okay. we got to be clear on that because we do have listeners in the UK. No, they understand what a butt-ton is. If it were a cubic butt-ton, I would have said a cubic butt-ton. Well, I mean, there's also metric butt-ton. It's a different quantity. There's also metric butt-ton, too. We, and that's, you know, we have to... Uh, no, this is a standard empirical butt ton. Imperial butt ton. Okay, gotcha. Anyway, if you are on a boss character stage, you cannot advance to the next stage without destroying the boss. 
and if you destroy the boss, you get 20,000 points the first time, 30,000 for the next boss, 40,000 for the next boss, and the final boss is worth 50,000 points. And when you defeat the final boss, which again is stage two, not the final stage, you get a message saying, and I quote, Congratulations! You are the best of player. Fight last one stage. You have played a good, uh, you have played a great game. <laughs> you are winner. Watch the uh, Angry Video Game Nerd review of uh, Ghostbusters for the NES and his, uh, his take on the, uh, um, <laughs> the end of game message. Congratulations. <laughs> That's classic. You have proved the justice of our society. <laughs> I love English. I really do. God bless them, I mean, and all, because they're trying their best, you know, to translate their language into yeah, English. Uh, but, I mean, you can't help but laugh. If you pick up a POW icon, they are usually worth a thousand points. And there's also something um, interesting that I've never really seen before, mainly because I tend, I don't really tend to play Capcom games a lot. But there is a thing called the Yashichi. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you how to make the Yashichi appear. And what happens is, Every now and again, there's going to be a small green plane that appears on the lower left corner of the screen, and it hovers for a few seconds. Then it eventually takes off. And if you shoot it while it's in flight, it turns into a Yashichi, which is a red symbol that kind of looks like a pointy cross in a circle. It actually appears in many Capcom games. I guess it's um, Capcom's analog to Namco's Galaxian flagship, I guess. But anyway, if you collect the Yashichi, you get 5,000 points. I'm pretty sure, first of all, to me, it kind of looks like a, a like a kid's pinwheel in a way. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and secondly, I'm That's pretty sure I've pinwheel. seen it in Ghost and Goblins and Commando on the NES. I know I've seen it in other Capcom games. Um, so other than that, so yeah, it is, it's kind of their little, their little symbol thingy. Anyway. I talked about how there's the percent and points up stage that appears every so often. Uh-huh. So I might as well explain like why that's significant. Well, quite simply because at the end of every stage, you get an end of stage bonus based on the percent of enemies you destroy. If you destroy a hundred percent of the enemies on the screen, you will get 50,000 bonus points. Now what's interesting about that is the game is going to tell you, you get 10,000, but you actually get 50,000. And if you destroy 95 through 99% of the enemies, you get 20,000, 10,000 for 90 to 94%, 5,000 for 85 to 89%, 4,000 for 80 to 84%, 3,000 for 70 to 79%, 2,000 for 60 to 69%, 50 to 59% gives you 1,000, and anything less than 50% gives you nothing. There's another bonus that I should mention. If you finish the game, you defeat the enemy in stage two, and you complete the last stage, you get a 10 million point bonus for winning. nice points. It really is, yeah. And not only that, but it gives you a nice, exciting message. The message says, we give up. Special bonus, 10 million points. Well, points spelled PTS. Game over. Presented by Capcom. P.S. Hope our next game. English. And then there's a copyright, and there's a copyright notice right underneath it. But what I notice is that, um, and I know this is being kind of picky, but the copyright symbol isn't actually a legal copyright symbol. It's just a C surrounded in parentheses. I thought that was legal. I think for it to be legally binding, you actually have to have the full circle around the C. 
Really? That would be hard to do if you don't have that in your character set. Yeah. Well, they could have used. They could have drawn a sprite around it or something. But yeah, that's just, true. I, I wonder how many other games do I'd that. I'd have to look into that. Again, feedback bait. <laughs> but yeah, as far as my, from what I remember from my media law course in college, um, this was never mentioned, but I don't remember much of it at all. But I think that's the case. This, the actual copyright symbol has to be a full circle with a C inside it. But anyway, I don't know. Maybe there were exceptions for like electronic screens or something. But anyway, so that's um, that's really what um, 1942, the video game, is all about. Um, 1942 did have several sequels. Yeah. The, the first one, and uh, this is actually a pretty popular one. I know a lot of people like 1943 better than 1942. I, th- I think Victor Marlin does, by the way. I think he's one of them. <coughs> um, Me too. <coughs> but uh, the first sequel is called 1943, The Battle of Midway. Notice anything odd about that name? Um, hmm, I'm looking at your notes right now, so I'm not <laughs> going to say what So it you says. weren't paying attention to what I said earlier. Well, I still have your notes. I follow along with your notes. Aw. Doesn't that make you feel special? Yeah, especially because you didn't notice that I skipped over a whole section. Yeah, I know. Yeah, the home versions. <laughs> but anyway, um, what's what's odd about the title of 1943, The Battle of Midway? The Battle of Midway happened in 1942. That's right. Yeah. And to add more to the confusion, the game was actually released in June 1987. What? Hold on a second. 1943, 1942, 1987. I can't keep up. And uh, there was also a second version. I just realized something. 1942, the game 1942, was released in December of 1984. 1984 is 42 times 2. Oh. If 1943 would have been released one year earlier. Oh. Oh. That would have been, yeah. But, but, But think about this. It's called 1943, the Battle of Midway. What is Midway between 43 and 44? Wow, no, 43.5 is... 43.5 times 2 is what? 86, 87. 87. Ooh. Yeah. Ah, getting tricky. I know. It's and, the uh, new math. It's common core. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> there was, they actually released another version of 1943, and uh, it came out only in Japan. Since it was only in Japan... It had a Japanese title. Whatever the Japanese word for 1943 is, I'm sure that was in there. But the rest of the title was Kai, colon, Midway Kaisen, which roughly means 1943 modified the Battle of Midway. And um, what happened was they took out some of the levels and they tweaked some of the weapons, I guess, to make the game a little bit more interesting. I guess this was um, the 1943 equivalent to Asteroids Deluxe. Mm -hmm. But... uh, I, I don't know. And there, there were also some home ports of that uh, uh, revamped 1943. And again, those only came out in Japan. In February 1990, there was 1941 counterattacked. And uh, depending on which source you believe, either December 7th, 1995, Pearl Harbor Day, uh, plus uh, 50-some years, or January 1986, Capcom released 19XX, The War Against Destiny. What did Destiny ever do to them? Maybe they triumphed over them. Oh, yeah, that's possible. That's a that's a uh, Jackson's joke, by the way. Ha ha. Ha ha. In June 20th, 2000, Capcom released 1944, The Loop Master. 
And um, there was also um, for PlayStation Network and Xbox Live Marketplace uh, the in July 2008, there was a game released by Capcom called 1942 Joint Strike, which is kind of an amalgam of 1942 and several of its sequels all in one game. So um, that's 1942 and its sequels. Um, 1942 had several home versions. It was on the Amstrad CPC, the Sinclair ZX Spectrum, the Commodore 64, the Nintendo Entertainment System slash Famicom, Game Boy Color, and the MSX and MSX2. And uh, there we have it. Is there? And um, anyway, um, my notes say discuss where saw. Okay. I don't remember really seeing 1942. I'm sure I must have seen it at uh, the Aladdin's Castle at the Louis Joliet Mall, as you call it, or possibly that game place at Jefferson Square Mall. But I definitely absolutely first played it at Underground Retrocade a few years ago. I know I've played the arcade cabinet, but it's one of those games where I know I've played it, but I could just not tell you where. I, I, I honestly don't know, um, but I, I know I've played it. It could have been could have been at a laundromat. Um, uh, really, I, it, it could have been. I don't uh, know. I don't really necessarily see this as a laundromat game. Yeah, me neither. I, I I I just don't know where I've played played this first, but I know I had played this in the arcade, and I hate when I can't. Well, uh, you know what? I mean, that'll tell you how much of an impression this game made on me. Let's leave it at that. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I couldn't. I I don't remember. Now I did have the NES version uh, when I had an NES. Oh way really? Back when. Wait, was it this or forty-three? No, I think it was nineteen forty-three. I had. Yeah, it was nineteen forty-three. I had not nineteen forty-two. Ah. I like nineteen forty-three better. I didn't, but I might. Ha- I might change my mind after all the time I spent playing nineteen forty-two. <laughs> Let's talk about the high scores uh, that are recorded. Yes. Um, there, it, Twin Galaxies tells me that Martin Bedard, I believe we mentioned him before recently. Because uh, um, I remember making the joke about foisted on his own Bedard. Yes. And he foisted again on November 19th, 2006, uh, three days before I shook hands with Brian Wilson. <clears throat> and um, he scored 13,360,960. Tells me he must have beaten the game. And Orcade.com agrees 100% right down to the date. And uh, I mentioned recently, I think it was the previous episode, that was kind of, or maybe it was the episode before that, that it's kind of odd that someone who had the same score on both Orcade.com and um, Twin Galaxies, mm-hmm. that the Twin Galaxies score was verified so fast when nowadays it'll take two to three weeks a lot of times. And uh, this one was verified the exact same day it was performed, but that's because it was adjudicated by a referee. So it was actually done live. The referee was watching it live as it was played. So it wasn't a video submission of any kind. But uh, congratulations, Martin. And uh, my official high score on 1942 was 125,690, performed December 13, 2014 at Underground Retrocade. I didn't care enough to post my score. See, that was back when I did care enough about it. I really loved this game before. It was it was a fun it was a fun game. I think part of the reason that I loved it is because when I go to Galloping Ghost or Underground Retrocade or Pixel Blast, they're all arcade.com subscribers. In fact, Galloping Ghost owns it now. So I usually make it a point to have my scores recorded. And when you follow the rules, you cannot use the continue feature. 
Well, this time I actually did play the game all the way through to see what happens. And let mm-hmm. me tell you something. It is maddening. Maddening. I don't understand how people can play this game and win on one credit. And I adjusted the dip switch settings to the easiest difficulty with the number of lives cranked up to the max. And I still had to use save states over and over and over to get anywhere. And here's the thing with uh, going back to the uh, the Martin Bedard's score of thirteen million three sixty nine three sixty nine sixty. He obviously went through and solved the game. Yeah, with that score with that score. Yeah, you have to. It makes you think. Wow, how the heck did he do that? I have fun with people's names or whatever from time to time, but seriously, Martin, my hands off to you on that. I don't know how you did that. Not at all. I'll just see if he had, oh, he actually probably wouldn't have a video. I don't, yeah, he wouldn't have a video posted on, unless he happened to record it. But uh, I'll have to see if any, there are any videos of it on Twin Galaxies or or YouTube or something where people actually finish it. Cause man, that is a beast of a game. And it it just gets very annoying. I mean, this was obviously designed to be a quarter muncher. Mm -hmm. I could say that. I could see that. Yet it was a massive success. Honestly? I think this game is boring. I, I I didn't get I couldn't get very far in it, but I'm just I don't know. I mean the power ups. It could be just that I'm playing it now with my eyes now. I mean because then you hit you have other games like uh, like its sequel 1943 with better power ups and ground targets and stuff that you have to destroy and only one life. Well, you have like an energy a energy meter in that too. Uh, in I, 1943. I know. I know. And then there's uh, then there's the game like Right End, which has these multi- massively insane power ups, which are so totally awesome. But playing it now, I mean, it just it, it's not a very deep game at all. It really isn't. I mean, it, it's mindless. It's a, it's a mindless shooter. There's there's I don't know. There's not a whole lot of strategy. I mean, you were talking about how earlier about Xevious. Xevious has different strategies and different and the game changes and there's a bit of AI in it. So you Yeah, know, and then you got the harder. cathedrals and everything. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it's just mindless. And the, 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 the shame with this game, as you can tell I'm not a fan, it just like it's it's got some good um pedigree behind it. I mean the guy that designed uh Gyrus and uh, the person that, that did the music is, is known for doing music for, what did you say, Ghost and Goblins, which Ghost has and pretty Goblins, good music. Yeah. That's her most popular. And this game, that music is so damn annoying. Oh, God, yeah. It, it is the worst music I have ever heard in a video game. It's Barnum. not bad music, but the thing is, it's okay the first time. Like, I think it's terrible. I think it's almost as bad as Arabian. I mean, if, if, Actually, it, only play, if it was, like, played for one iteration, like, just at the very beginning of the stage, but instead of looping during the entire freaking stage... I, it's, it, it's, it's irritating. It is so damn irritating. I, I, just, it, I just can't play this game with that music. It's just... It's, just, it's, it's screechy. It's like, it's like fingernails on a chalkboard bad. The other thing about it is that if you lose a life, you have to do almost the entire stage over. Really? So if I, you're if you're on a boss because if you're on a boss character stage, yeah, yeah, you're right. Actually. You have to start almost from the beginning. You can't just pick up where you left off with the boss character. So you have to survive that entire stage again, and then still try to start all over with the boss character. And it's just, blah! man, all I can say is that. <sighs> 
if the no swear gamer heard the things that I was saying and muttering to myself, <laughs> man, he would. He, when I was trying to play this game, he he would never want anything to do with. Well, then again, for all I know, he doesn't want anything to do with me ever again. <laughs> but man, and the boss character Ayako, ugh. and you know what? I was originally going to rate this game 1942. Three continues, but the more I talk about, it, the more I realize, man, it was really making me mad. This is one of the games that I would always like if I go to underground retrocade and if I happen to go upstairs, I don't always go upstairs as much as I should, but upstairs at underground retrocade, that's where they have the post crash games. I, that was always the first one I went to galloping ghost. I'd always go to 1942. I think they have a 1942 in the same cabinet as a 1943. They have two boards in one mm-hmm. and I would play the 1942. I don't think I'm ever going to play 1942 again. <laughs> I really yeah, don't. I, I have no desire to play this game ever again myself. I'll give 1943 a chance and maybe some of the other variations as well. 1943 is a much deeper game. It's what 1942 should have been in the first place. Is it the bullet hell game that 1942 is? Or do you actually have a I don't remember. Uh, I've only played it a couple are of a lot, times. The power-ups are definitely a lot better. And as I was saying, there are ground targets uh, that you have to destroy, like uh, giant um, like uh, battleships and aircraft carriers, which is kind of nice for some variety. So that's a that's there's that's you know what that's one thing about this game. There's also not a lot of variety in it. I mean, obviously you're fighting airplanes over the ocean, so there's your your opportunities for variety are limited. But I mean, even given those restraints, they could have done something more with it other than just a boss yeah. every now and then. The more I'm talking about it, the less I like this game, and I didn't like it a lot to begin with. Thing is, I did, and now I don't ever want to play it again. <laughs> I don't think I've had any sort of game like that. No, no, actually, I think I felt the same way about Arabian that you did about this game. I loved Arabian in the arcade when it first came out, but the more I played it over time, it was like the less and less I liked it. I still like Arabian, I gotta say. <laughs> But oh boy, I guess I'm just going to tip my hand here, unless you want to rate yours first, since you are host man two. and this is your game. Two continues. You're, ooh, you're rating it a two. You're being pretty generous. I'm rating it a one. Wow. I don't like this game. I, I just <laughs> do not like this game. And wasn't this my choice, too? This was your choice. <laughs> I, ch- and I, chose, I chose two tigers. I've been wanting to talk about two tigers yeah, from the beginning of the podcast. And man, I'm glad I got it out of my system, so I never have to talk about it again. Yeah. Don't like this game. Play 1943 instead. It's a lot better. It's a lot more fun. I'm curious about 19XX, though, because that, that seems to get a lot of hype. I've played that in MAME. I don't remember a whole lot about it, though. It's like, I think Doc posts about it a lot. I think he, always, he posts a lot about it when someone plays it. I have to try it, it, it again. Like, Ooh, someone's but playing 19XX. 1943 is a much better game. There we go. There's my rating. There's your rating. And um, ratings, ratings, ratings. and um, Ratings, ratings everywhere and not a drop to drink. Yeah. Well, except for this grapefruit shandy from Wine and Google, a brewing legend since 1867. Why are we giving them free advertising? Because you like their product and you want to try to score some for free? Yeah, they're they're not paying for this podcast, unlike, say, Richard Valdez, Underground Retrocade, Jonas Rulo, Keith Sheehan, Greg Polander, Nate Lockhart, Kyle Etter, Rory Coleman, and Michael D'Angelo. They are all paying for this podcast via Patreon, and I thank you all for doing that. We both thank you. Yes, thank you. Thank you. And um, listen to our booth announcer at the end of the show for information on how you can join that elite list. And uh, also yes. thanks to Steve Tui and Tuiville for carrying our show. Of course, we didn't even 
mention what the theme of today's episode was. Oh, who cares about the theme? Yeah, we didn't really have much of it. This is probably our most lame theme we've ever done. World War II games that have a two in the title. Whoopee. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> That's the lamest theme we've ever done. Yep. And we actually had... Uh, we haven't really had great themes lately, actually. Hey, I still think uh, our best theme was games that I first played at Hunk's Pancake House. Oh, that was an awesome theme. That was awesome. <sighs> so, yes, World War II games with a two in the title. So One of them we liked a lot, and one of them we didn't really like. So, um, Yoji, about which Yo. games should we discuss for the next episode? Well, we're going to uh, to celebrate the arrival of a new Star Wars film in only six months from now. Uh, we're going and to geez, talk then about the previous one just came out too. Yeah, six months ago, actually, actually, it uh, it's actually releasing on Netflix on the nineteenth of July. Oh, uh, World really? One Star Wars story. If you haven't seen it, in my opinion, it is tied with uh, a New Hope as the second best movie yeah, in the series. I want to see that. I want to see it. it. We did, we were gonna, my wife and I were going to go see it. We just never had a chance Rogue to. Rogue One was so damn good. It's, it is really a great movie. And I just love how they explained away a large plot hole from uh, uh, the original Star Wars <laughs> film. It was so brilliant. See, I'm was, not even a Star so Wars brilliant. fan, but man, I can't wait. I want to see Rogue One so bad. I I Rogue loved the Force Awakens. I really did, but I can't I wait to it. see the for, uh, to see I Rogue hated One. Force Awakens, but any rate. But yeah, for the next episode, Empire Strikes Back, kaboom, and Paperboy. Yes, and the Empire Strikes Back and oh, Paperboy. I know what the themes. I know what the theme is. It's uh, jobs that Ferg once had in a prior life. Why? Yeah, he. He piloted the Millennium Falcon. That's right. How did you know? That's right. Yeah. So, yeah. So, Empire Strikes Back and Paperboy. I cannot wait for this one because, oh. yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, I agree. The same, People I are going the, to the same reason to I can't the wait theme. for it. I also, yeah. Uh, you know what? We've never done this. I don't think we've ever really. No, we, I think we actually did this once as a contest. But we're not doing it as a contest this time. Just sort of for fun. You're listening to this episode. Tell us what you think the theme for Empire Strikes Back and Paperboy is going to be. Oh, so it's not the first I don't know if you'll actually theme? guess this one. Huh. Um, okay. <laughs> this is the first esoteric theme we've had in uh, quite some time, actually, I believe. So tell us tell us what you think it is. This is, like I said, this is going to be the first esoteric theme we've had in quite some time. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I guess uh, coming to you from the... Um, from the sandy beaches of Chicago, this is um, Sean. And coming to you from one of the very few uh, high-level nuclear waste uh, storage facilities in the United States, this is Yoji. And uh, we'll talk to you again with um, episode 58. If Thank you're you for listening. Bye. Okay, I love you. Bye-bye. Bookworm. This episode of the Pie Factory podcast was edited and produced by Hyde St. Pierre. Opening and closing theme is The Happy L composed by Sean Courtney. Love theme from Addenda and Arata was composed by Jim Goble. Follow the Pie Factory podcast online via Facebook, on Twitter at Pie Factory PFP, or on piefactorypodcast.com. Support the show at patreon.com slash piefactorypodcast. P.S. Hope our next episode.